This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. This is the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, James Baldwin had a very long career, but never wrote an entire book about Africa. However, a black scholar says Baldwin's later work showed a keen understanding of African liberation. And should a female athlete be disqualified from competition because some people think she looks and performs too much like a man. But first, Dr. Jarrett Ball has spent years disproving the proposition that the road to progress lies in harnessing black consumers' buying power, which supposedly exceeds a trillion dollars a year. Dr. Ball is a professor of communications at Morgan State University and author of The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. Going back to when I was working with you and doing commentaries of Black Agenda, this was one of the earliest issues I tried to address then. And since then, more than a decade now ago, I have been trying to both trace the popular discussion of the concept and go back and look at its actual origins to try to really find out why this myth pervades so much. And as you and all of your listeners know very well, any of us who have spent any amount of time in any black political public sphere have heard a version or another of this myth that we have this pool of money and if we just stop buying weed and rims and hair and all these other things and foolishly giving away our money, we could harness this money and develop any number of things from black banks to black businesses to collective black wealth. We could evolve new black Wall Street and et cetera and so forth. But none of that comports with, A, the easily observed material reality that people experience on a daily basis. And B, the myth doesn't comport with the actual studies of the condition of black or any other community that we get on a regular basis when honestly or or covered or reported. So when I just started looking at the reports that would continuously come out explaining the horrific condition of black people and the devolving nature of that material condition over the last 50 years even, and then of course criticizing that as a false standard based against the most horrific condition of enslavement, and then Jim Crow, to say that, no, not only are we not progressing against that false standard, but we're actually devolving against the false suggestion of progress that we saw 50 years ago. Meanwhile, we're getting this heavily promoted and routinely described myth of buying power that is, again, laid against us in any number of different ways. So what I was just trying to do with this book in a relatively short hundred or so pages, just go back and look at the origins and to look more carefully at the propaganda that props up the myth, because the economics of it are really very easy if we just lift up the cover for two seconds. If this thing called buying power really did exist, black people would still have a lot less of it than other people anyway. You're right. The claim of buying power, and I go through some of the history of this, it originates in the 19th century collusion between the business elite and the government who were trying to 
address the rising concerns of labor, who at the end of the 19th century were saying, you know, okay, we got over this enslavement thing and this industrialism thing, and we're seeing cities evolve and so-called conditions improve, but working people seem to be working more and getting less. So what was done as a result was quite naturally, we're beginning to become rebellious. So as a result, the elite got together and, and said, well, we need some statistics that honestly assess the value of the dollar being paid to working people. So A, we can tell working people what their conditions actually are, and probably more importantly, B, we can tell the business producers of the world how to adjust their labor costs and their salaries to make sure that working people are paid enough to buy the products that they help create. This is the way to balance the needs of capital and the needs of maintaining social calm so that capital can do its thing. What ended up happening was those reports, cost of living reports in the Bureau of Labor Statistics that produced them, by the early 1900s, we started to see many black people across the political spectrum being encouraged to misread the data. So we would see everyone from Du Bois to Garvey, for instance, on the political spectrum, both misread the concept of buying power as an assessment of what black people actually have, as opposed to what it really is a measure of what any labor group or black people in this case can afford to spend on the goods and services owned by others that are made available for purchase by black people. So it is not an assessment of income or wealth. It's an assessment of how much black people end up having to spend in the economy. So that's where the myth originates. Then by the middle of the 20th century, a black business media class after the Second World War wanting to take advantage of the now more than $6 billion annually spent on advertising by white corporations, they wanted to help produce a version of blackness and the black experience that told white corporations, if you give black media money, we have a community we can promote your products to that can now afford to buy them. And then, of course, the government and the business elite wanting to project an image of the United States as open and free democracy were happy to accept this false image of blackness. So in the end, we get this colluded myth propagated by the black business group and media elite that black agenda were quite, I think, accurately described as a black misleadership class who wanted to falsely project a condition of blackness that does not and never has existed so that white corporations would spend their dollars with black media, black commercial media. And then that's one way that the echo chamber gets developed and manufactured and sustained. And of course, as a result of that, we lose sight of even within the mythological development, and we can maybe talk about that in just a second, but even within the mythological development of the numbers, black people still only have one eighth of the buying power of white America. So even if the concept were real in the sense that many of us are encouraged to believe it, we still don't come anywhere close to achieving a parity or some condition where we could compete economically with white people or even compete economically in the sense of providing the needs and the services and the conditions for all in our communities. So where did this $1 trillion black buying power figure come from? So as I said, it started with those government statistics. And then in the 1950s, there was a relationship again between most notably John H. Johnson of Ebony and Jet to work with the Commerce Department of the United States to take the phony statistics that were tied to black income and say that black people at the time in the 1950s had $15 million in income and then said that therefore that income could be then marshaled as buying power and used to not only demonstrate that America was great and free and equal, 
but that black people were in their condition and were becoming the kind of American citizens, red consumers, that the commercial business class of the United States have always wanted of all its citizens. And therefore, white corporations could then safely advertise with black media because their audience would bring those consumers to white corporate and commercial interests. But later on, what ends up happening is by the 1990s, and I'm condensing a little bit here, skipping some stuff here, but by the 1990s, the Selig Center, based in the Terry Business School in the Bank of America building in, in Athens, Georgia, and Jeffrey Humphreys in particular, starts producing these buying power reports which again were meant initially per the Terry School of Business, the Selling Center's mission, that is, to help Georgia's business community connect in terms of advertising and marketing with a broadening consumer base. They start producing these reports, uh, buying power reports, claiming black people have X amount of billions and now over a trillion. And those reports just, because of the media environment and the commercial journalism environment that we suffer, never got vetted, never got checked, and creates these headlines that get picked up. And again, because of the interest of the black press, starting in the black press, the commercial black press, that is, creating, promoting this myth and regurgitating this myth, reading the headline of the buying power, and then using that to convince white advertisers that we're doing better than we are. And then, of course, convincing their, in many ways, middle-class aspiring, in many ways, conservative black audiences to assume that black America is doing better and we could even be doing better if we had a better financial literacy and spending habits. And then what ends up happening is nobody checks the origins of the reports. Nobody checks how the reports compile their data or their claims. The reports are buried behind $125 paywalls, et cetera, and so forth. So with bad reporting, no investigation, regurgitating of myths that then get picked up by our pundits and our lecturers and our clergy and regurgitated in all manner of media and then picked up by any number of luminaries in the black political environment, the myth just gets regurgitated over and over and over again to the point where it becomes an axiom and believed without questions. But when you actually do get the reports, as I've done and outlined in detail in this book, and break down how they compile their numbers, you can see that it's based on projections and fantasy expectations and all based on nothing that any sound economic analysis would be built upon, all meant to produce a marketing fantasy for the advertising community that too many of us have taken up as actual political and economic tactic or strategy or analysis. Yes, what we're talking about is capitalist propaganda with a black political twist. But even Minister Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam have backed off talking incessantly about black capitalism. However, hip-hop seems to be saturated with it. Absolutely. First of all, I think what you point out about Minister Farrakhan is important because the phrase black capitalism, which is something I talk about in the book in terms of its history and how it relates to the macro of the subset of buying power, what ends up happening is that buying power becomes a euphemism for black capitalism. And that the argument that used to be vigorously argued in the black political world is washed away, replaced with this euphemism of buying power. So you do end up having everybody from Minister Farrakhan across the political spectrum, to the late, great Amos Wilson, to any number of people, to Claude Anderson today, to a number of people to, you know, across the political spectrum still borrow or use a variation of this, and I think incorrectly, and to the detriment of their analysis and audience's understanding of our relationship to the economy. 
But then, yes, in terms of the propaganda of it, and I do talk a little bit about Jay-Z's relationship to this and the sad, paradoxical reality of him being born on the day Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were assassinated and the, and the, the difference in politics represented there. But hip-hop has been marshaled, as has been the case, and I do talk about this in the book, as has been the, pop- the case with the popular image of the so-called Negro for many decades. And it has been ex- openly, expressly, and documented in the statements and reports and the, the writings of intelligence agencies and, and mainstream and elite communication scholars for decades that the image of black people must be manicured in the defense of both capital and white supremacist interests as a defense mechanism, as a way of managing the gaps between the material reality and the lived experience, and all to create a propaganda meant to not only further the interests of American commercial business, but also of, of the concept of America in general. I mean, all of this has been very openly expressed, so it should be of no surprise when those of us argue and show how commercial hip-hop has been marshaled to the same effect, to promote conspicuous consumption and the idea that if we somehow operated with better financial literacy within a capitalist society, we would all do better. And in the end, what it ends up doing, and I argue is that this is the primary function of the myth, is to blame poor people for being poor and to redirect attention away from infrastructural and institutional racism and capitalism to the bad behavior of the poor. So what I end up arguing and suggesting humbly at the end of the book simply is that what we should be targeting is the $20 trillion gross domestic product that we all contribute to every year, which is real as opposed to the mythological trillion dollars that does not exist that we do not have access or control or even any mythological influence over in terms of, of, of a vote, and yet takes up so much of our, our time and our attention. If we just simply said, why aren't we asking more questions about the $20 trillion we generate every year, and then say, if that were better distributed, nobody has to raise questions about their material conditions or the realities of buying power, et cetera, and so forth, because there would be so much money to take care of everybody's interests and needs. And then we can move on to more important questions of how is money and wealth generated and what impact on the world that that actually has. Yes, in terms of material realities, when only three super capitalists own more wealth than the bottom half of the U.S. population, then a black capitalist liberation movement seems ludicrous. Oh, absolutely. I mean... Never mind that the basics are always understood that you can't have, you know, an elite wealthy group without a massive amount of poor and the necessities of creating the difference. What I talk about a little bit in the book is some of the reporting that never gets discussed where elite venture capitalists are openly complaining now among their own cohort that they better enact some sort of, dare they say, forms of socialism to close these gaps as a matter of self-preservation, that their fears are overtly being discussed, that the inability of working people to actually buy the products that are being produced by working people is going to create more and more tension. And whereas, as I quote, one venture capitalist is saying, they, meaning the poor, will come for us with the pitchforks and the knives. In other words, the very concerns that originated the concept of buying power in the 19th century are coming right back now in the 21st, coming to a head right back now in the 21st, and are of major and overt on-the-tongue concerns 
of the most elite venture capitalists who are saying they don't want socialism. They're very happy with the wealth that they've amassed. They just want to make sure there's enough to go around to protect their status from the rest of us. And so buying power as a myth has to be shattered, particularly within our communities, if we're ever going to begin to not only understand the relationship we have to the economy, but to then have more vigorous and honest discussions about what we're going to do about it. Because if buying power and black banking and black capitalism continue to return as encouraged pathways to collective uplift, we're never going to get anywhere. And as I talk about a little bit in the book, and as others have been talking about for so many years and documenting for so many years, it was primarily at what I point to was the coming to the head point in the 1970s, where the Nixon administration promoted black capitalism more than at any other point in this country's history as the way to black power and encouraged that as a concept that I think has taken hold decades later in so many of the minds of our community, in part because of the business class and the media, black business media classes, adherence to that myth for their own benefit and the promotion of it to our own community. So we have to have some serious dialogue with our black presses. We have to have some serious re-engagement with our alternative presses like Black Agenda Report and others. And we have to have more honest conversations about, again, not only the economy as it, as it exists, but our relationship to it. And buying powers is one component myth that I hope to help in some way abolish forever so that we can move on to some more fruitful conversations. Yes, working people don't have enough purchasing ability to keep the system itself moving along, which is why there is such monumental debt. That's it. And of course, we know, and as I've learned from you know reading your work and others, part of the reason we have so much debt is because debt was the only way that those in power could close the gap between what we were producing since the 1970s, which has gone up, and the wages we've been paid for that production, which has remained the same. And if you're paying people effectively not one penny more today than they were being paid in the 1970s for the massive amounts that they're producing, then the only way that you can assure that they can afford to pay for it, which is how the economy works, the movement of capital, the movement of money, is to offer them debt and to make money from debt, which is why, you know, others have pointed out for a long time now, people may notice this more and more, that when they go to whatever store they're going to at checkout, they're almost always encouraged to sign up for some sort of credit card at the store or some sort of financing at the store and they get some price you know reduction on the immediate purchase that they're getting because stores are increasingly making more money off of selling financing and debt than they are the products that they're actually physically moving out of the stores because this is the only way the fantasy of capitalism can maintain itself so this is again what the venture capitalists are concerned about and again why i think buying power myth has been so successful and persistent and useful as a tool by the black and white commercial classes who have been unified in this because it promotes a mythological condition and it promotes, more importantly, a myth about what is a possibility in this economy. The idea that prosperity is just around the corner. So there are so many myths that I try to deal with in this book, whether it's the circulating dollar, whether it's the concept that you can bank black and have that become successful. You know, we heard Bobby Rush foolishly trying to defend Bloomberg on some other media outlet you know, the other day. One of the points that he raised was that black America has the same amount of black banks that we had in 1960s, which is exactly correct, except his reasons and his explanation for it was exactly wrong. The reason we have the same amount of black banks as we had in 1969, to be exact, and I talk a little bit about this as well, is because the simple answer is because there aren't enough dollars in the black community to sustain black banks or to have black banks grow. 
and the black banks don't earn enough and create enough pools of money to invest in the global economy, which is what all the banks do to make more money for themselves, to then reinvest in the communities. And then, of course, white supremacy alone, never mind capitalism, makes investment in black communities a non-starter because as soon as you do, simply because they're black, they devalue. So black banks can't thrive. They can't expand in this economy, in this kind of relationship. And only the myth that banking black and buying black and having better financial literacy, only those myths are what sustain the system as it's currently arranged because the material reality is unsustainable. And yet those myths permeate deeply into the black community by hip-hop, which seems enthralled by the possibilities of a little bit of capital. Well, in this sense, I don't see any difference between the black commercial media or black commercial class, media class, press class, and commercial hip-hop. Both are, in, in this sense, owned by the same entities, whether it's directly by white corporations or indirectly by having their content controlled by white advertising dollars. The content is almost identical. In, in each space, the goal is to promote the idea that if you just spend a little better, you could do better. Because, and I do touch on this a little bit in the book, that one of the things that I think is grossly misunderstood in this country is the role propaganda have played, particularly since World War II, in creating for us what we have now is the most highly propagandized community in world history, and it's not even close. So what ends up happening is it's very easy for, again, not only with the history of intelligence agencies and the government and, and marketing agencies, and elite media groups and business groups and political groups all conspiring in a number of different ways to promote false images, not only of black people, but of many other groups, including white people. But the role that that has played in sustaining them has been immense. So part of that has been to marshal black cultural export. They did it with jazz in the 50s. They're doing it with hip hop today to promote a false consciousness, a false reality of the black experience, and then to use black spokespeople just as was done by Johnson and many others to promote an economic worldview to their audiences that is both false and inhibiting when it comes to both developing an analysis and a plan of action to get out of it. So whether I'm dealing with students in the classroom or you're dealing with readers in an audience that you're trying to reach, we're all having to get over this initial wave of propaganda that has not only been carried on in the school systems, but been buttressed by a media and a popular cultural environment, all literally controlled by the very same entities and influenced by the very same groups of people and entities, all with a very similar agenda of making sure that we don't raise certain questions. And those questions, are, of course, include, as I'm trying to get us to ask just simply in this, this book, where is that $20 trillion going every year? And how come any of us are asking questions about any of us going without that was Dr. Jared Ball speaking from Morgan State University in Baltimore. The great writer James Baldwin is mostly known for his insight on race in the United States. But according to Dog Mawi Wuchet, a professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania, Baldwin displayed a growing understanding of the African liberation movement in his later works. Professor Wu Chet wrote an article on the subject for the Journal of Contemporary 
African art? It took me some time to recognize the kind of shift in Baldwin's work about Africa and also just other themes. Once I began to read in a deep way, the late works. I think for many of us, we know Baldwin from early novels and essays leading up into the civil rights movement, but the kind of work that he produced from the 1970s on until his death in 1987 are often unread or they have yet to receive the kind of robust critical attention that they deserve. So for me, it was, you know, working on Baldwin's late works and late style that I began to see a kind of noticeable shift in the way in which he approaches the continent. Now, I think it's, you know, somewhat slightly different with Baldwin than, say, other kind of luminary figures in black arts and letters and in black politics. When we think about someone like Richard Wright, for instance, he wrote Black Power, had traveled to Ghana as, you know, it's a problematic text, but there was that kind of deep engagement trying to establish that link between what's happening on the African continent on the verge of independence and what's happening in the American context. Or if you think of someone like Claude McKay, the new book that was released, Amiable with Big Teeth, where he thinks about Italy's uh, Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia and how that campaign mobilized the black world in the United States. And of course, there is someone like Du Bois who has long and hard thought about Africa from one could say, outside of his career. And Baldwin, the difference I see with Baldwin is the early Baldwin is concerned about realizing the kind of the kinship between white and black America. So much of early Baldwin's work up until the civil rights movement and the end of American legal apartheid is to show that indeed There is this deep kinship between white Americans in this new context of the new world and black Americans in this new context of the new world. And he's trying to show Americans, black and white, how profound that shared identity is. So Baldwin, early in his career, doesn't spend that much time trying to establish that link that deep link between Africans and Africans in the diaspora. And of course, that begins to change in his work of the 1970s and 80s. But I see a different kind of engagement of other luminaries in African-American letters and their engagement with the continent of Africa. Yes, it seems that his early writings are essentially integrationist or exploring the possibilities of integration and thereby is always examining the relationship between black Americans and white Americans and Africans are, well, something else entirely. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, when I think about the kind of the burden that Baldwin shoulders in his writing, right? On the one hand, it is also to transform the English language as a literary artist so that his identity, his experience, all the riches of black life 
could be accounted for in a language stripped of racist assumptions and anti-black sentiment. So I think the kind of the thing that is driving his artistic enterprise is that that kind of reckoning with the English language and its racist assumptions. And I think the, the, what's propelling his political vision forward is ending American apartheid. I mean, the thing about Baldwin is because, you know, born in the 1920s, dies in the late 80s, he lived through such epochal transformations, not just in American life, but also in the 20th century. And we have to take seriously what in his early career, living in a country that, you know, reduced him to second class citizen, reduced black people to second, at least according to the law, reduced us to second class citizens, that there is a different impetus of his political vision. Yes, of course, Baldwin championed integration, but a book like The Fire Next Time published few years before the Omnibus Civil Rights Act, so published in 1962, 1963, the two missives in the fire next time. Yes, Baldwin is talking about integration, but moreover, transformation of American ideas, American institutions on black terms. Quite often when we talk about integration, it means black people and people of color integrating the center on white terms, but Baldwin's integration had a different and radical supposition, which is integration on our own terms. We don't leave the margin and enter the center to become the center, right? It's how do we move the center to where we are and transform it in our own images, in our own terms. So I think sometimes integration these days at least has there's a pejorative use we use in it. But when I think about many of the folks from the civil rights movement who championed a kind of radical integration, it was a, a means to transform America on the suppositions of the black radical tradition. Paris, of course, is very prominent in James Baldwin's life and in his writings. And, of course, France is a great colonizer of Africa and a place that he meets lots of Africans as well. Indeed. And I would argue, so we see this in the early essays from Stranger in the Village from 1953, Encounters in the Sense, from 1950, Princes of Powers from 1957, that is Baldwin's essays from the 50s, that once he moves to Paris, all of a sudden he is meeting Africans from all over the continent, right? And kind of flesh and blood. So the idea that encounter is not simply mediated through text or through some bankrupt notion and racist notion of American films or European uh, writers, but he's actually meeting Africans in Paris. Now, on the one hand, this opens up a new possibility of a different kind of encounter, but the place itself mediates that relationship, right? He's meeting because this is still the 50s, that we are talking about Africans who are living in Paris, who are still under 
the yoke of colonialism. As we know, many of the African countries in 1960 alone, 18 African countries become independent. So that wave of independence on the continent begins to take shape in the 1960s. So he's meeting Africans who are still technically subjects of the French Empire. So on the one hand, Paris opens up a space to have these encounters and to reshape his assumptions of Africa and Africans. And at the same time, it delimits that encounters because France is still in the 50s an imperial power. Now, I don't know if I'm reading this right, but it seems that Baldwin is beginning to realize that black Americans are not the exemplar of black people on this planet, but a very particular experience. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because in Paris, you know, he's meeting not just continental Africans, but also Africans from the Caribbean. And as we know, France in the 50s and 60s, as scholars have argued, the capital of the Black Atlantic world, right? The negritude movement with figures like Senghor, with figures like Césaire, begin to take shape in France. You have, of course, African-American expatriates like Baldwin, like Richard Wright, like Chester Himes, who are also writing and creating and reflecting on what it means to be black in that context. And I think by virtue of being living there, you begin to have a very expansive notion of what it means to be black, that it is not delimited by the nation state. Being black American is one articulation of it, but one could be black Senegalese, one could be a black person from Martinique, from all these different places, and one begins to have a capacious understanding of not just what it means to be a black person in the world, but the kind of possibility, the potential of black internationalism, the cultural and the political resources of black internationalism. Just above my head was Baldwin's last novel that was published in 1979. And you say that it is the only Baldwin novel that is divested of what Toni Morrison calls the white gaze. Well, I say that in part it's such a masterpiece, Glenn, that it needs to be read in the same way that we read American high schools or you know universities, we read Go Tell It on the Mountain and then The Fine Next Time, and that's pretty much it. Maybe now with Barry Jenkins' adaptation of Bill Street Could Talk, one reads If Bill Street Could Talk. Or in Gender and Sexuality Courses, you read Giovanni's Room. But this masterpiece, just above my head, is not taught, is not read, and what I find so moving and really exceptional about that novel is it is not trying to work out the kind of America's interracial drama, as some of Baldwin's works often do, or at the center of it is not some racial antagonism. Baldwin is concerned with 
intra-racial, intra-mural black life, the ways in which the kind of many differences within black life also are a deep source of meaning, you know? Black life is not simply shaped or determined by its antagonism towards whiteness. No, black life also takes shape and gathers profound meaning in the way we relate to one another. The class differences within black life, the gender differences, the differences of generation, the difference of region, nation, place, and Baldwin is centering the expansiveness, the capaciousness of black life in a way that whiteness becomes so peripheral. So in that sense, I believe it's a turn away from the ways in which, you know, whiteness explicitly or implicitly shapes black letters or black ideas. And I think it's divested of that. So the idea of whiteness or white characters are so peripheral and it's the idea of black people and black visions that take center stage in this novel in the same way I think of much of the late Toni Morrison's work. And Baldwin may have divested himself of the illusion that Africa could be totally explained or understood by him. That is, Africa is for itself and doesn't need his explanation. Absolutely. And indeed, one of the characters, one of my favorite characters among uh, Baldwin's many, many, many characters is Julia. She's one of the lead characters in that novel. And she actually travels to Abidjan and she comes back and reflects on that experience. Now, what's notable about this in Baldwin's Corp is that, you know, beginning with the second novel, Giovanni's Room, which takes place in France. And in that novel, we have Italian characters, we have Belgians, we have Americans. But some of Baldwin's fiction takes place in Turkey. His essays take place from Switzerland to France, you know, all over the place. But this is the first time in his fiction where we have a character who goes to Africa and that experience begins to shape in a meaningful way how she thinks about her black Americanness. So that in itself is noteworthy. But then you're absolutely right. When she comes back, when she's reflecting, she talks about how she'd been blinded, all her assumptions. She says Hollywood threw acid in her eyes when she was seven and she could not see, meaning that all the cliches of Africa that film has projected or literature in the main has projected. And she says she goes to Africa and all of that was demystified. And she says she could not come back and make these conclusive, reductive assumptions about Africans. And in a way, when you think about an essay like Stranger in the Village, Baldwin's essay, where Baldwin in fact trades in some of these reductive, uh, conclusive assumptions about Africans. So in the late works, just above my head, and also a conversation he contributed in a volume called Perspective on African Art, we get a very different impression of Africa where Baldwin gives it, if you will, the right to opacity, meaning that Africa is no longer made to be transparent, 
simply for the benefits of the West. That was Professor Dagmawi Wuchet speaking from the University of Pennsylvania. Sociology professor Anima Ajapong of Simmons University specialized in exploring questions of gender and sports. Dr. Ajupong published an article recently that discussed the 2012 Olympic Games where South African women's track star Kester Semenya won a silver medal but caused a huge controversy by looking to manish. It served largely as an entry point into a broader discussion about where are African sportswomen located in what the sociologist Ben Carrington has called the sporting black diaspora. I think the notion of the sporting black diaspora is a really important one because what that tool is offering is how to think about black cultural politics through sports. And sports is such a popular event and accessible to so many. And it's been a site of real anti-colonial, anti-racist, anti-capitalist struggle. So my initial interest, I watched the race with great interest back in 2012. And I thought, wow, what an amazing race, especially given all that had happened prior to that moment in which Castro Semenya stood on the track in London in 2012. She had been ridiculed. She had endured gender testing. She had been called a man. Her family had been put under great scrutiny and surveillance. The whole idea being that this African athlete was cheating and had no right to compete with other women. So the focus on that race is in part just my own personal interest. It was just a very exciting moment to watch. But the larger question is, when we look at Castro Semenya and we look at the discourse around her, as well as the space that she takes up, what might we learn differently about Black cultural politics in sports? And what might we understand about African genders more broadly? So rather than thinking about sexuality in this piece, I'm really thinking about gender and the ways in which Black genders have been largely pathologized, whether in the U.S. or in an African context. Black genders are always either excessive or not adequate. And because Casa Semenya does not engage in what, what scholars have called a female apologetic, which is the way that sportswomen, largely in the West, right, because so much sports scholarship really focuses on women athletes in the West, but Semenya does not conform to this notion of the apologetic. She's not apologizing for being athletic. She's not apologizing for taking up cultural space in ways that do not conform to what we would call heterosexual femininity. And so by insisting on her athleticism, by being gender expansive, which is to say by not conforming to how we typically construct femininity, even Black women's femininity. So Kresa Semenya is married to a woman, Kresa Semenya dresses in men's clothes, and Kresa Semenya is also sponsoring uh, women's, like those menstrual cups, right? So she's complicated as a public figure. And so what I wanted to do with the article was really to examine what all of these complexities give us in thinking about Black women's embrace of masculinity, which is a, patholo- a pathologized position, because as a masculine woman, ideally she should be apologizing 
And as a masculine woman, she should never lose a race against other women because masculinity, within, especially within the sporting context, is what makes you strong and virile and helps you win races in this case. I appreciated that you said that she you said she lost and then you said she came in second, which is how I write about it in the article, because coming in second is certainly not losing. And yet um, that's how it was initially framed in the post-race discussions. Oh, my gosh, Cassis and lost. How could she lose? She's supposed to have these unfair advantages as a masculine woman. So, again, also kind of thinking about the kind of racist underpinnings as well as the sexist underpinnings of that, because she's black and an athlete, you know, the black athlete has this, there's this notion that the black athlete is essentially more athletic than any other athlete, uh, which is also part of a very popular discourse. White men can't jump that sort of thing. At the same time, she is a man, right? That's how Pastor Semenya was positioned in terms of all the gender testing. And so that comes up, how can this man lose to a woman. And so all of that kind of makes her and that race, because of the real scrutiny on her gender prior to that moment, an interesting entry point into thinking more broadly about sport, the sporting Black diaspora, and women's embodiment of masculinity. We should point out to our listeners that the International Association of Athletics Federation asks Samanya to undergo gender testing because she's so fast that some folks were saying that she was not fully a woman. But the International Association of Athletics Federation isn't really prepared to tackle the question of what is fully a woman or not. That's absolutely right. And even even just in the last couple of days, there has been some more discussion around Semenya's testosterone level. So that's been a big part of the... When Semenya was asked to undergo gender testing back in 2009, I believe is when the first concerns came up. It's because she had ran a really fast race. She didn't break any world records. So that was not the case. It's that they said she was too fast. And the idea of being too fast as a professional athlete, especially as someone who wasn't breaking any world records, it brings up this notion of, well, what exactly is the problem here? And so with Semenya, it became about her gender. And she's not the only track athlete to experience this. There's also Duti Chan, who was actually forced to undergo surgery to so-called correct her gender. And so what Semenya has been doing during this time with support from a number of other people has been to resist this imposition on lowering her natural testosterone levels, on whether it is to uh, engage in some kind of hormone replacement or some kind of surgery. She's been refusing this and continues to compete. But there continues to be pushback against Semenya taking up space on the sporting field. So this issue is not over. I wrote about a race in 2012. But in 2016, at the next Olympics, during that Olympics, she did actually come in first. And what happened was that there were two other Black women who came in second and third. And the European woman who came in fourth, I don't remember where she came from, she said, well, I'm the first European to come in as to this race. And so kind of positioned herself as the winner because somehow the black athletes who beat her did not count. 
And so that also becomes another way in which this kind of racialized discourse is playing out as black athletes, the athleticism is kind of suspect because of this so-called unfair advantage. But on the gender issue, the IAAF, which is the International Athletics Federation, the IOC, which is the Olympics Committee, continue to be unsure about how to characterize gender. And so because sports remain constructed as a gendered space, there's always this issue of how fast are women allowed to be? And then testosterone, the hormone, has become a site of contest around whether or not do these female athletes have too much testosterone and what kind of unfair advantages does that hormone give them? Now, there's a really wonderful book that's just come out by Katrina Karkazis. She has a co-author. It's called Testosterone. And the book is examining these different issues that testosterone has been offered. So it's like, this is a hormone that gives people unfair advantage. So the book is by Rebecca Jordan Young and Katrina Karkazis. It just came out either this year or last year examining all of the weight that's put on testosterone as a hormone and how it's used to discipline and police women in sports. That's been a big part of what Semenya's issue has been, the idea that she has too much testosterone. So it gives this one hormone a lot of power over athletic ability when we know that having the right kind of diet, having the right kind of training, having the right kind of sleep, there's so many different elements that might have made it so that in 2009, Semenya ran a lot faster than she did previously because this was a moment in which she had received a different kind of training, a different kind of meal plan, whatever it is that allowed her to tap into her natural athletic abilities and expand on her training that then puts her into this position is all boiled down to this single hormone that the Athletic Federation, the IOC, and other sporting organizations cannot seem to work their way around. And so sportswomen being called men as an insult, essentially, is part of the problem that Semenya confronts. Yes, but you and others want to take this way beyond just discuss chemical discussions of testosterone and such, and to, as you write, disentangle masculinity from its problematic and exclusive ties to men. Well, back in Georgia, back in the day, certain women were described as acting mannish, certainly tying their behavior to masculinity. But you want to open up that whole discussion. Exactly. So that's precisely where I was going, where right now, the way that we understand gender, even in a moment in which we are in the social context in the U.S. in any case, where there is a greater kind of recognition of non-binary genders and a greater recognition that masculinity and femininity are not necessarily tied to bodies. One of the things that I think Semenya's public embrace of her masculinity, unapologetic public embrace of her masculinity offers is a way to think differently about not just black masculinity. Well, black masculinity as not attached just to certain bodies, but in a more expansive way, because that's part of the problem. The problem is that Semenya being fast is equal to Semenya being a man. That's a problem. One might recall the tennis match between Billie Jean King and the man whose name I don't remember because he just never became a great in the same kind of way, but he assumed he could beat her at the top of her game, even though he was out. Right? There's just, there's just this kind of idea that athletic prowess equals masculinity. And Semenya 
is a great athlete and embraces her masculinity. And one of the very beautiful moments that I think she offers is when she received the Sportswoman of the Year Award. And she shows up to receive this award as a sportswoman in men's clothes, as we would call it, right? But she's wearing it, so their clothes. And she says, unashamed, they say she looks like a man, she talks like a man, well, get lost. Which is to say, it doesn't matter how they say, this is how I am and this is what it is. And so there's a kind of resistance against this very limited way in which we understand bodies and gender to say, it doesn't have to be that way. And the way that athletes like Semenya, the way that other women athletes embrace their masculinity, and because it's so public, because sports are such a public arena, we're able to kind of think differently about how gender is operating and be more expansive in our everyday understanding of who counts as a man and who counts as a woman to perhaps break down the boundaries of those categories a bit more and allow for more room for people to embrace the full diversity of their human experience. And so I think that's really a big part of what looking at this particular athlete, but also thinking more broadly about queer genders can offer us a way to rest more easily in whether it's the softness of flowers that we want to embrace without necessarily saying this is a gendered thing. If I like roses, that's not necessarily gendered, but that I like roses while also enjoying the pleasures that come from kind of playing with gender in whatever ways that we might see appropriate. That's part of that disentangling that I think an athlete such as Semenya offers in a way that raises this pathology that is often assigned to it. You also examine gender representations in some other cultural settings in movies like Set It Off, Cleo, the character portrayed by Queen Latifah, and even the discussion that was prompted around Black Panther women who were referred to as girls with guns and the ramifications of that. That's right. Popular culture is always such a great space to think and examine these issues because popular culture is precisely that popular. Uh, the My engagement with Set It Off is thinking about Queen Latifah as a popular representation of Black women's masculinity. And Queen Latifah's character in that movie, Cleo, is quite toxic. She is the worst of the boys and the worst of the girls, right? So, I, I mean, all of them are off to rob a bank or something. But what I was talking about in referring to Cleo and Set It Off, I was talking about female masculinities and talking about Jack Halberstam's book in which they are examining the various ways in which women can embody masculinity. And I think it's such a brilliant book because for me, it was my first introduction to a theoretical understanding of how we might decouple bodies from the social construction of gender. But Halberstam was hesitant to theorize much about Latifah's Black masculinity because it is a toxic masculinity. And when we think about how Black genders are constructed in the U.S., we are aware that Black women have not typically been afforded the respectability that comes with femininity. And so it's kind of a tense place, perhaps, for 
a white scholar to say this is a toxic masculinity if you only have one narrow understanding of what black masculinity looks like, which is toxic, which of course isn't true, right? Masculinity comes in a lot of different packages. And so Cleo's character is one example of a kind of female masculinity, but it is a problematic masculinity. It is violent and it is excessive, but it is also queer, right? So Cleo's character in that she's a lesbian and she's aggressive. And so that problem, that excessive masculinity was not quite touched in this discussion of female masculinity because to not be able to make that racialized analysis of like, this is not a representation of Black masculinity in totality then limits what becomes possible for Black women's embrace of masculinity. So the Black Panthers example comes from Kara Keeling's work, which is actually looking at Black femininities and thinking about the ways in which even that too becomes an almost impossible space. Black femininity cannot be imagined or even acknowledged outside of a heterosexual lens. And so with the Black Panthers as Black women with guns, their femininity only becomes visible in relation to the masculinity of Black men. And so that too becomes a kind of impossible, it's impossible for that kind of gendered embodiment to stand on its own. How do we think about Black femininity as Black women's femininity as femininity on its own? In the same way, how do we think about Black women's masculinity as masculinity on its own? Which of course is a reminder that gender is relational, right? Like gender doesn't always necessarily exist as is on its own, but in fact, we're constantly kind of relating with one another and then constructing gender through those relational moments. But at the same time, because of the racialized ways in which gender is constructed, it becomes more difficult to understand and to kind of recognize how Black genders operate, especially outside of this heteronormative lens. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.